Dear Heavenly Father, that song really is our prayer this morning, that you would make us humble today, and that by your Spirit-inspired word, you would lift us up to your Son, the only Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, in case we haven't met before, my name is Ben Cuthbert, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at South. Our senior pastor, Don Denyus, is traveling with uh, Asian Biblical Theological Seminary. That's a part of Cornerstone University and Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and he's on a trip to Asia for the next couple Sundays, so you can be praying for Pastor Don as he participates in meetings for the seminary, and as I think he takes part in teaching uh, some courses to pastors and missionaries, uh, nationals in some of the countries in Asia who are uh, taking the gospel to places where it hasn't been before. So keep Pastor Don uh, and his travels in your prayers. It's always a privilege to come and share God's word, and I want to propose to you as we start today that there are only two types of people in the world. Only two types of people in the world. And I'm not talking about male and females, okay? That's a reminder that God, by his good design, has created us, male and female, in his image. But that's just a gender distinction. I'm not talking about liberals and conservatives. That'd be a political distinction and far too contentious to uh, dive into on Sunday morning at South Church. I'm not talking about rich and poor or young and old. Those are you know, economic distinctions or generational distinctions. I'm talking about two types of people as described in God's word, the Bible, what we might call a spiritual distinction. And today's sermon text, which was already read by Pastor Doug from Proverbs 3, verses 33 to 35, if you'd like to turn there, gives us a wonderful description of these two types of people. Uh, If you aren't familiar with the Bible, the book of Proverbs is right about in the middle of your Bible. It's right after the book of Psalms, right before the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll be looking at Proverbs 3, verses 33 to 35. In the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 628. And in Proverbs 3... 33, 35, we see this description of these two types of people, and we will note their differences and their destinies today. Their differences and their destinies. So let's listen, since it's such a short passage of Scripture, let's listen to God's Word again and see if you can't spot the differences and the destinies of these two types of people. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be aware that the book of Proverbs is really originally written to young people, specifically young men, instructing young men how to live God-honoring lives. But as you read the Proverbs, you begin to understand that its truths are timeless and its instructions are universally applicable to all people. 
And we'll see these descriptions of these two types of people are very timeless and very universal. Something that we need to hear today. So let's, as I said, first look at the differences between these two types of people. They could not be more different. There's such a stark contrast. Each of these types of people are described with three words. First, you have the wicked, the proud, and the foolish. That's type one. And then, in contrast, you have the righteous, the humble, and the wise. Very different type of people. And let's take a look first at the wicked, proud, and foolish. What does the Bible mean by the word wicked? If you're like me, just being honest, the word wicked conjures up images of Wizard of Oz. I mean, when I think wicked, the immediate thing to my mind is the wicked witch of the West. Or for you really sophisticated Broadway types, you think of Elphaba from the Broadway musical Wicked, right? But that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about Oz. And neither is it talking only about the most wicked people or groups that you can think of in the world today. I mean, when we think wicked, we might immediately think Nazi regime. Or we might think ISIS. And we think of those horrid atrocities, those terrible acts of terror that they've committed on humanity. Surely those are wicked people, but that's not only what God is talking about here. What I want you to understand is the word wicked in the Bible simply means guilty. To be guilty, specifically to be guilty before God. God, who's the loving ruler of the world who has given us his word to guide us and lead us to life and life everlasting. There's a type of people who are guilty before God. Their status is that they are enemies of God. They're at odds with God. They've disregarded God and his good words, and they are at odds with him as his enemies. Now, before you dismiss the idea that you might not be wicked, that I might not be wicked, let me remind you that the Bible speaks very clearly about all people as guilty. Guilty before the loving and perfect ruler of the world. Most of you are probably familiar with these words from Romans 3 that are really an echo of the book of Isaiah. As it is written, there is no one righteous Not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Sobering, isn't it? That is a description of everyone. As my little cubbies and I, that is the four- and five-year-olds in our Awana program on Wednesday night, as as my little cubbies and I learn, A is for all. All have sinned. Again, kind of a sobering thing to teach to four- and five-year-olds, but we want to teach them honestly and truthfully from God's Word that 
Before the perfect God, we have all fallen short. All have sinned. And our sin, our rebellion, our wickedness is not merely our wrongdoing. I was teaching uh, session three in our membership course last Sunday morning, and we walked through our church statement of faith. And our church statement of faith says that people are sinners by nature and by choice. In other words, our wickedness, our, our, our guiltiness is not only a matter of wrong choices, wrong actions, things that we do against God, but it's a matter of wrong being. Our very natures are corrupted even from our mother's wombs. So wickedness describes this first type of person and his or her status before God. And the wicked have an attitude of pride. They're proud mockers, as verse 34 says. Proud mockers. Uh, Other Bible translations that you might have in your lap this morning, some of the most trustworthy English translations, describe these people as mockers or scoffers or scorners. But the NIV adds this word proud, and that's the word that I'm going to use this morning. And I think it's a legitimate addition to the translation to help us understand that those who are mocking others are ridiculing or holding others in contempt, maybe even ridiculing God himself, they are that way because they're proud. They think of themselves better than others. They think of themselves better than God. Overt mocking of others might show in looking down your nose at others, uh, making fun of those who have less than you, making fun of those who know less than you, making fun especially of those who maybe live more righteously than you. And it might show itself in mocking God by just shaking your fist at God and saying, I don't want anything to do with your word. I defy you, God, to tell me what to do. That's a proud mocker. But I'm not so sure it might also show up in subtle ways. Maybe less high-handed, shaking your fist at God, and more just rolling your eyes at God. Like, really? This word is really relevant to my life in the 21st century? I mean, you expect me to live by this word? I think that's a proud, mocking sort of attitude. The sexual ethics in this book, are, they're so prudish and pre-1970s, they can't be serious, right? Or the, the type of generous lifestyle of giving to church and missions that Christianity calls us to from the Bible, that can't take seriously my needs at home and my recreation and my career pursuits, that can't be serious, right? I think that might be a more subtle form of proud mocking, but it's proud mocking nonetheless. And this wicked status and proud attitude begins to show itself in foolishness, according to verse 35. These people are foolish. 
Again, foolishness is a word that we need to define a bit because foolishness is not simply making a mistake. Like, oops, forgot to pay my cable bill. Guess I'm going to have to pay the penalty, pay that late charge, and pay the dumb tax. I mean, that might be foolish, but that's not the foolishness the Bible is talking about. Foolishness in the Bible is to live actively out of step with God and his ways. To live in habitual, willful defiance of God. And so the foolish acts, the sinful choices, they just become the the outward evidence of the wicked and proud hearts and minds. You understand? But you're really living in a way that is habitually out of step with God. A fool in the Bible pursues rebellion over and over again. A fool in the Bible won't take the counsel of others. A fool in the Bible can't be corrected because a fool in the Bible thinks that he or she knows better than everybody else, even God. So to summarize it thus far, the first type of person is wicked in his status, he's proud in his attitude, and he is foolish in his actions. How about the other type of person? The righteous, the humble, the wise. Righteousness in the Bible simply means innocence. See the difference? The wicked were guilty, right? The righteous are innocent. Innocent like God. Right or righteous like God, and therefore right with God. The wicked were enemies, and the righteous are welcome in God's company, even welcome in God's family. But I just got done saying to you and reminding myself that there's no one righteous, not even one. So how, how can anyone categorize themselves as the righteous in Proverbs 3. Well, according to the Bible, the only way someone can be called righteous, right, innocent before God is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus alone. It's the only way that you or I can call be called right with God. By grace, a gift, through faith, trust in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, puts it this way. God made Jesus, who had no sin, he truly was innocent, the only one who could call himself righteous in nature and in actions, in choice. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him, by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's how someone becomes righteous, by faith in Jesus. That's what we just sang about a few minutes ago. I was nearly weeping sitting down here, thinking about these lines from that classic hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and 
righteousness. His righteousness. Last stanza says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Someone can call himself or herself righteous only by faith in Jesus. That's the only way it's possible for God to render the verdict that the the wicked, guilty people are now innocent and righteous. We've, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, that is, we've been clothed or dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what those songs and the scripture teaches. And so we begin to see the person who is truly dressed himself in Christ's righteousness begins to live a righteous life. Think about it like this. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, and now we need to grow into that righteousness. It's kind of like buying clothes for kids who grow so fast. My wife is great at this. She knew that our oldest son, Jonah, needed a new winter coat. She didn't want a, win- want a winter coat that would just last one winter. So she bought a winter coat that was just slightly too big. And she gave that go- coat to Jonah a month or two ago. So he's got a coat. He's got a new coat. He's dressed in this new coat. But if you look at him, don't judge us. It looks a little bit big. But he's going to grow into that coat, Right? In the same way, someone who's been clothed in the righteousness of Christ needs to grow into Christ's righteousness. That's why we can say we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and yet at the same time, Colossians 3 can say, put on Christ. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these Christ-like virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Uh, The truly righteous is righteous in Christ and growing into their righteousness as they exhibit righteous living throughout their life. And that righteous status shows itself in a habitually humble attitude. That's verse 34. To be humble is literally to be low, to be unfortunate to be afflicted to be poor to be poor think about those who are physically poor those who are economically poor they don't have anything and they know it they know what it is to feel real need they know that they need help and they welcome assistance when it comes their way they are humble and they are needy, and they welcome assistance. Now think about what it might mean to be spiritually poor or spiritually humble. It means that you know you're a wretched sinner, a guilty, wicked rebel against God, and that you need to be rescued, and you welcome the rescue of God. As the scripture from First Peter and James says, you're counting on God to lift you up. That is the truly humble person. And that humility is habitual. 
The humility is something that starts the Christian life and characterizes Christians over time. To be humble in an ongoing sort of way is to be poor in spirit, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, right? Someone who is humble enough to say, God, speak to me by your word. I need to learn from it. It reminded me of the way Pastor Don described Jesus last week from the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus was humble enough to be governed by God, Don said. That's humility. And the righteous and humble person is also wise. Now let's define wisdom for a moment and remember that it's not just about how much you know. Wisdom is not primarily about academic degrees or how smart or intellectually savvy you are. Wisdom, biblically speaking, is putting God's word to practice in your everyday life. It's really practical. Have you consumed God's guidance and then do you live it out in your everyday activities? That's what it means to be wise. It's the opposite, again, of being foolish, someone who disregards and runs away from God's word. Think about it like this. It's like an athlete who is fit for the game. The athlete who knows the coach's game plan and puts that game plan into action on the field of competition. So whether you like the Patriots or not, we had a great example of it last Sunday. Because Tom Brady put Coach Belichick's plan into place and led the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. He made it look easy. That was sort of like wise football playing. We want to be wise. The Bible describes this person as wise in their everyday life, submitting to the will of God and living in a wise sort of way that shows forth in your actions. The whole book of Proverbs, actually, is about wisdom. And it's guiding women and men to live wisely. Here's a classic text to women from Proverbs 31. Wise is the woman who recognizes that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Talk about countercultural, but that's wise, ladies. Or men, listen to this from Proverbs 6. Wise is the man who recognizes that God's commands are meant to keep you men, to keep you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. she eats you up. And the adulteress preys upon your very life. Live by those wise words, men. That's biblical wisdom. So do you see now how different these two types of people are? Can you feel the tension? Can you feel the contrast between uh, the wicked, proud fool and the righteous, humble, wise person? There are only two types of people in the world. And they're not only different in this world, their destinies, their future is entirely different. So let's think about their destinies. The wicked, proud, foolish person has this to look forward to. 
He will be cursed, he will be mocked, and he will be shamed. Verse 33 says, the wicked will be cursed by the Lord. By the Lord. You don't often think about that, but if the Lord is a good and ruling and just judge of the world, he can't let this rebellion of wickedness continue forever. It's actually good and right that he would pronounce curse or punishment on those who are out of step with him. It's like we expect judges to make right judgments when a criminal sits before them, that they would get the sentencing right. We all want justice. And so we should expect nothing less than the perfect judge, the Lord. And I want to suggest that the curses that the wicked feel are curses that they feel now on this earth and that they will feel eternally. In verse 33, it says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. That's a way of saying that sin has consequences that reach into every area of your life. Your house is all your possessions, everything that you have. And isn't that the way sin works? You know it from your own life. That sin is never private. It just creeps into and impacts and infects all sorts of areas of your life. That's how sin works. Sexual sin destroys marriages. It destroys families. Gambling, and I would say including buying a harmless lottery ticket, as the Bible makes clear, And economic studies show it undermines the economic wealth and stability of society. Substance abuse creates social instability and it fuels violent crime. See what I mean? Sin and the curse of sin goes to the whole house of the wicked. And that's not just true temporally here in the here and now. It's true eternally. The Bible speaks of the reality of eternal judgment in a place called hell. Jesus warns people about the reality of hell. And this is a warning to the wicked that they will be cursed by the Lord himself. The proud mockers, they will be mocked. In other words, they will get from God exactly what they give to others. God will get the last laugh, so to speak. It's like a movie or a book where the villain seems to be winning the whole time. Right up to the very last chapter or the last scene. And then the hero wins and he gets the last laugh. So will be the case for the proud mockers. They will be laughed at and mocked by God. In Psalm 2, God laughs at the pathetic nature of the rebellion of people. It says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. The proud mockers will be mocked. 
And in verse 35, we learn that the foolish will be shamed. The NIV states it kind of clumsily, I think. It says, the fools he holds up to shame. What does that mean? Well, one Old Testament scholar suggests that a slightly better translation might be that the fool earns or gets shame or disgrace. In other words, again, he gets what he earns. Or he gets what he has, uh, like sort of the, the wages of his life. The idea is that the fool gets what's coming to him. The fool will reap what he's sown. God will put wicked, proud, foolish people in their place. And they will blush with shame. When they're found out. The destiny of the righteous, humble, and wise couldn't be any different. Look again with me at verse 34. Sorry, 33. The righteous, the righteous will be blessed by the Lord. Again, the Lord is the one who curses and the Lord is the one who blesses. And the Lord blesses the righteous. We said before that the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Notice the subtle but very real different word that he blesses what? Of the righteous. Not the house, but the? Say it again. Got to make sure you're listening. Home. You've heard it said before when you move into a new structure, a new house, I hope my wife is really going to be able to make this house a home. These are two different words. House and home. And home is meant to to picture a place of protection, of security, of rest. And that's what God offers the righteous protection, security, and rest. Again, both now, you're able to live your life guilt-free knowing that Jesus paid for your sin and that you've been the recipient of God's grace. And it is true that to live a righteous life oftentimes will yield fruitfulness and blessing that the wicked will never know. But it's not only a blessing here and now, it's a blessing that's eternal. It's a blessing of an eternal home, the presence of Jesus for all eternity. Some of you have lost loved ones recently. What a comfort to know that those who are in Christ, they experience the blessing of God. And we'll all be resurrected and reunited for a wonderful eternal rejoicing in the new heavens and the new earth, all those who are righteous in Christ. That's a great destiny. The humble will be graced, will be gifted, will be lifted up, says verse 34. The Lord gives grace to the humble. That's that key theme that's reiterated from the scripture reading in 1 Peter 5 and James 4. It's a reminder that to be humble toward God and to be humble toward others, we're counting on God to lift us up at the right time. 
Grace, this gift of grace is undeserved, unearned favor and kindness. Rachel and I bought a little children's book for our boys at Christmas. It's called Eric Says Sorry. Write it down. It's wonderful. Eric Says Sorry. And it's a book about forgiveness and God's grace. And I want to read for you a couple little lines. What's grace? Asked Eric. Well, said his dad, it's undeserved kindness when we've been bad. We all mess up, but God loves us still. Grace puts things right, and it pays the bill. Amazing, said Eric. But how does he pay? Son, whispered Dad, there was only one way. Jesus paid for our sins with his blood on the cross. Wow, exclaimed Eric. Grace costs a lot. The humble are recipients of grace, not because grace didn't cost anything. Grace costs the Father, His only begotten Son. But you can only receive it as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. Be humble and receive the grace of God And then the destiny of the wise, the wise will be honored. Remember the foolish? They'd be dishonored. They'd be shamed. The wise will be honored. That is, they'll experience glory and fame. That there's real hope for a future destiny of honor. And notice again the slight word choice. The fools, they were going to earn their shame, right? They got what they earned. But the wise, they inherit honor. It's another reminder of the sheer grace of God that what the wise have, they don't have because they were smarter or they were somehow more righteous in and of themselves. No, as one Old Testament scholar puts it, honor is a permanent possession by their rights within God's family, not as something taken By ingenuity. It's like the person who receives something from a will. You got it by nature of your relationship with the one who gave it. Not because of what you did or because of what you earned. It was an inheritance. So the blessed, graced, and honored life and destiny come to those who are righteous and humble, and wise. So my question for you today is, which person describes you? Are you still, like all of us were born into this world, are you still wicked, proud, and foolish? Or, by the grace of God alone, Are you righteous, humble, and wise and seeking to live out that righteous, humble, and wise life day in and day out? If you're still wicked, proud, and foolish, this proverb is meant to be a warning 
to you. It's a serious warning. I remember in my own life the day I really recognized this warning for myself. I was going into eighth grade and I came to realize, though I had a lot of head knowledge about who Jesus was and I could quote a lot of Bible verses from Awana and VBS, the, the truth of God's word sunk from my head to my heart and I realized that I was a wicked proud, and foolish individual. I wouldn't have used those exact words in eighth grade, but under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I recognized that I was out of step and God's curse was coming my way. But it's not just an angry, predetermined judgment sort of warning. I want you to know it's a gracious warning. In other words, this warning is an invitation to no longer remain in your wicked and proud and foolish state. And it's a call to throw yourself on Jesus and to trust him and him alone so that you can be rescued, as the Bible talks about it, converted from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. It's a gracious warning and a generous invitation. So if you don't know that you've been transferred, changed, converted, please, today, do something about that. Here's a couple ideas. You could ask a Christian friend after church today, how do I really become a Christian? What, is, what does it really mean to cross that line? Or talk to a prayer partner after service or Call or email me or one of the other pastors so we can sit down and just very carefully and prayerfully share the good news of Jesus with you that you might turn from sin and trust Jesus. Make plans to attend Christianity Explored on April 23rd. There's another way to start. I'm serious. We all need more of God's word in our life and that is the best place for anyone who's not sure of their salvation or a new Christian to start. April 23rd is the next Christian Explorer. The date's on the inside of your worship folder on the connection card. But, as Jesus put it, you must be born again. Now, if you're here today, and by the grace of God, you are already righteous, humble, and wise, praise God. Praise God that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. But let me remind you that this proverb then, it's an exhortation. It's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to continue in a life of righteousness and humility and wisdom. That over the long haul of life, you will persevere in your faith in Jesus and your desire to become more like him as you lean on God's word and are empowered by his spirit. That's a challenge. But it's an encouraging challenge because remember all the blessings. It's hard. It's hard to live the Christian life in this world. But this is an encouraging exhortation because there is real blessing. There's amazing grace for all eternity. And there is an inheritance of honor waiting for you. So be encouraged and keep putting on Christ every day. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, 
We thank you for this word, and we pray again that you would make us humble enough that we would receive this word and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name I pray.